and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur. How is everybody today? How are things? How is your world? How is stuff? How is stuff? How are things going? Things here. Uh, having a fun time prepping for the Christmas time. Uh, into December now. Got through, got through the Thanksgiving. That's over. That's done with. Everyone seemed to survive the Black Friday. Good, smart. There's a, a video game from a few years back uh, that's basically uh, uh, it's a takeoff of like Dawn of the Dead. It's a guy stuck in a mall with a bunch of zombies. Uh, but the uh, the latest iteration of that game, the uh, the d- disease spread in a mall where people were trapped in there on Black Friday. Um, and that game hits a little differently <laughs> this year. Just sort of like, yeah, that's a bunch of people crowding around each other. Uh, in the middle of a, a disease spreading around, not as much fun as it used to be. It used to be sort of clever and funny, and now I'm like, let's see, let's see how we're doing after that. So I'm just uh, diving headfirst into the Christmas, and especially knowing that we're probably not going to see my family this Christmas. Certainly not going to see the wife's family because they're out on the coast. No one's hopping a plane either direction anytime soon. Um, so I think what I'm doing is just getting real into the Christmas decorations, and already. I'm a big Christmas decoration guy, and I learned this from my family because my mother is a lunatic. My mother uh, redecorates the entire house for every holiday. Every holiday gets things on, on every floor of the house, every room, every wall, everything gets tweaked to match the holidays. And that includes, like, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, some of the lesser ones that you normally aren't like, yeah, I got a big, you know, box full of stuff for that. Like, no, nah, it's, uh, you know... I, I'm glad that we don't do Columbus Day for obvious reasons, but it feels like at some point in time we maybe did. I, I don't know. So she does that. But also my family doesn't have a lot of people over uh, even before this. Uh, so and, and sometimes my sister and I can't make it back for the things that they're doing. So a lot of the time she just puts in like a week's worth of work setting up and then another week of like taking down for no one, for them, uh, for her. Uh, it's... It's really cute, and I've always loved it, uh, and uh, so I have more holiday direc- decorations than most people do, and also Halloween and Christmas are the absolute best times of the year, absolutely, so why not lean into that? Um, I used to be the sort of person that uh, left my Christmas tree up for, you know, maybe the whole year. Uh, when I started uh, dating my wife, uh, it was around the holidays, uh, and then circa July, she told me she would break up with me if I didn't take the tree down, and I was like, that's fine. I'll just, uh, I can absolutely do that, I guess, uh, if that's the choice. Because, I don't know, it's a tree with pretty lights on it, and I like looking at it. I don't know why I can't live that way all year round. And I was told, well, you know, we have to keep Christmas special. Like, if you leave it up all year, like, it doesn't matter. So, um, yeah, I think I'm just going to start spending a lot of my time and effort on Christmas decorations. Uh, my neighbor put up one set of lights, one one of those sort of uh, matted sets that goes over that covers a whole bush and it just looks like there's a lot of lines there. He put up just that, and immediately I got the weird, like, Christmas vacation, Christmas light, escalation war urge thing going on, where I was like, oh, I've got to go out and get, like, a thousand lights today. I have to, sh- I have to, I have to one-up, I have to ten-up what he's up to, uh, because that's fucking Christmas. That's how we do <laughs> Christmas. Um, so, I don't know, uh, it... Normally, I'd I'd be, you know, traveling around a lot, seeing a lot of family, seeing a lot of uh, Christmas lights and stuff. And this year with uh, staying staying mostly at home, I uh, 
I guess I'm just going to make my own Christmas winter wonderland here, like really triple, quadruple down on, I don't know, if, if the lights I'm going to see are the lights on my house, then my house is going to have a lot of lights. We have we have two Christmas trees. I uh, didn't, it, it kind of, uh, one came from our Halloween tree that went up, uh, and, and now there's there's the other Christmas tree. So I have a, a fake black Christmas tree and a fake white Christmas tree. So we have one for each room. Uh, that faces the street. Uh, very different, very different vibes. <laughs> so, uh, gonna get the white one up today. Uh, yeah, I just I don't have enough decorations for both trees, so gonna get that. Gonna get a lot of exterior lights. Gonna gonna make a, an at-home Christmas really feel like uh, like everyone's around. So, that's my project for the week. Very excited to dive into that. So, in today's reading uh, from the Pitch Magazine, we have our friend uh, Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment, and he is reading a pitch piece written by our very own Allison Harris um, about somebody working in the ghost field here in Kansas City, a, uh, an independent businesswoman uh, doing a black-owned business, uh, helping people out. It is our cover story from the December Magazine. Hope you enjoy. Who You Gonna Call? Marie Jackson's Story Will Haunt You by Allison Harris Not everyone has the guts to divert their life of its apparent path and begin a paranormal investigative organization. Of course, not everyone has had a lifetime of haunts like Kansas City native Marie Jackson. After growing up in haunted homes and having a myriad of experiences with the spirit world, Jackson decided it was time to stop running from the things that seemed to follow her, and embrace them. In 2018, she officially started Pink Street Paranormal, and she's been researching and conducting investigations into haunted locations across Missouri ever since. The thing that actually kicked off my interest was the fact that I was raised in haunted homes, Jackson says. We were exposed to all kinds of paranormal happenings and events as children, and as I got older, I realized that I had some pretty unique abilities that didn't dissipate when I was a kid. Instead of me pretending that I didn't have these abilities, I decided to just embrace them, nourish them, and find people out there more like me. In 2016, Jackson began to make connections with other paranormal experts in the city. This helped her develop her spiritual gifts and collaborate with other like-minded people on investigations. I decided to open up about what I had been experiencing, and what I had been dealing with as a child, and even as an adult still, Jackson says. So I started reaching out to a bunch of different paranormal agencies and facilities to try to engage with them, just to get a little more education, and also to see and connect with people who were just like me. So that started in 2016, and then I started to do a lot of research into the houses we lived in, and gathering information about events that took place prior to when the houses were built. Jackson's sister, Melanie Evans, can attest to her spiritual gifts and to her haunted upbringing. She explains that, like Jackson, she had many inexplicable interactions growing up that led to her belief in ghosts and spirits. Well, we grew up in a haunted house, Evans explains, and for a long time we just ignored it, so if we heard bumps in the night or stuff walking across the floor we'd think, oh, it's just somebody in our family or the old house, but then, after so long you just can't ignore it. And when you start to see things like apparitions and things you just can't explain as a kid, an eight-year-old kid, I would think to myself, okay, did I just see a little girl walk across the floor into the back room or am I crazy? Growing up in a house with brothers and sisters, she just brushed it off as thinking maybe she saw one of them. But when Evans was completely alone and continued to see spirits, her mindset began to change. 
Okay, that happened, that's there, she began to assure herself. There was one experience that me and Marie had when we were sharing the same room. We were laying in the room together, and we start hearing this banging on the wall, a consistent loud banging. And then we heard a distinctive sound that said, get out. We got up and we ran into my dad's room yelling, it's a ghost, something's going on. And he just said, deadpan, kill it. He just did not believe it. Soon, though, Evans explains, even their mother would begin to see things. She'd be standing in the kitchen and say, hey, go outside, there's a white guy standing out there. She would see me go outside, looking around, and she would still see that apparition at the same time that she saw me. It got to a point that it was just time to go. But then it, their paranormal experiences, followed us. It followed us from house to house. So we're thinking, the house wasn't haunted, one of us was haunted. And I think it was Marie. Because family is such an important part of Jackson's life, it was integral for the sisters to open up to them about their experiences growing up. Jackson and her sister have begun conversations with their family about their childhood experiences. But for Jackson, telling her three children about her spiritual gifts and having them believe her was one of her most heartening moments, she says. I think the transition point with me really embracing it was when I talked to my kids about it and they accepted me, she says. Once they accepted me and my experiences in my past, then I felt like everybody else can follow suit. At first they were kind of like, huh? And they had never talked to my siblings about it. We never spoke about it to other people. We suppressed it. We kept it to ourselves. So we took my kids to my siblings to corroborate everything that happened to me as a kid. It was definitely an uphill battle, but now they're my strongest believers, Jackson says. Going into the world of paranormal investigations just felt like something she had to do, she explains. She'd been developing the skills and the bravery needed to hunt ghosts her whole life. It was only a matter of time before she decided to lean into it. It wasn't hard at all, Jackson says, of her decision to abandon her previous goal of opening a children's hair salon to do full-time paranormal investigations. In life, we are so positioned to do what we're told to do, and what others will approve of us doing. We never focus on what is our primary purpose in life. I kept running from it for years, and I kept hiding it and sheltering it, because I didn't want people to judge me. She explains that Pink Street was originally going to be the name of her hair salon, and she decided to keep the meaningful name when she started her paranormal agency. I took that name and said, it's already here, and considering I do investigations from street to street, I'll just keep it sweet, simple. Pink Street Paranormal, she says. This actually connects, and I think it connected for a reason, even if it wasn't for the reason I originally designed it for. Now that she has fully embraced her talents and begun investigations with Pink Street, Marie is able to affect the lives of others in a positive way. Mecca Haziaz lives in the haunted Belfontaine house and reached out to Marie to request her skills to help affirm her spiritual experiences while living there. So I was scrolling through Facebook and actually saw Pink Street Paranormal on my timeline, Haziaz says of her first contact with Marie. Coincidentally, I just moved into this residence and there's a lot of weird crazy stuff going on around here, so I'm like, You know what? I think things may be getting a bit out of control, and I have children, so I just decided to give it a shot, and I talked to her about it. She agreed to come over here with her team and do a little work. While Haziaz was not present for Marie's investigation into her home, she says the impacts of her work are felt by her and her family. I'm not sure of the process, but I can tell you 85-90% to of what I was feeling in here, it eased up shortly after. I don't feel it as much at all since they came here, she says. I was actually sleeping on the couch because I felt paranormal energy by my bedroom door. I just kind of felt some relief after Marie's investigation, and I've been sleeping back in the bedroom, and I don't feel that way anymore. 
Jackson's existence as a black woman in the paranormal investigative field is something of a shock to many people she encounters. With Pink Street, she wants to break the stigma of belief in the paranormal within her community, as well as break the mold of what a typical ghost hunter may look like. I want to bring a spotlight to the communities like black communities, all kinds of culturally diverse communities, where people think that these things don't happen, Jackson says. And they do. Most of the time on TV, what do you see, she asks. Nice, happy white families. And you don't ever see a black family telling their story. I wanted to see if I could connect to other people that have had these experiences, especially when it comes to the African-American culture, Jackson says. You don't hear a lot of people talking about hauntings, or having been in haunted situations, or houses. You don't hear about that a lot when it comes to the black culture. So I said I wanted to awaken that dormant idea that people have, that it doesn't happen to our culture. It's really interesting. I get the weirdest looks, says Jackson, on being the only black person in the room at paranormal investigative gatherings. I consider myself to be an attractive African-American woman. When they see me, they do not see a paranormal investigative person who can see ghosts. It does not dawn on them that this ability is existing within me. Whether you're a believer or not in the spirits, Marie Jackson is doing important work. Having someone to validate your experiences of the paranormal in your home or community is valuable to people, especially if they look like you. So if you're stuck in a haunt, look to Marie Jackson, a fearless and kind-hearted person who seeks out the ghosts in our establishments and ends the stigmas in our communities. And now, as usual, it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. At the beginning of 2020, Kansas City power trio Radkey released their sophomore album, No Strange Cats, on their own label, Little Man Records. The band exits 2020 with a new release on that label, entitled Green Room. As the band writes in the press release for the album, which was surprise dropped on Black Friday, quote, Green Room is the amalgamation of everything that we've learned over our whole life in music. Through the years of working with producers, touring, and just hanging out together listening to music at home, we finally gained the skills to produce an album on our own and make it sound exactly the way that we wanted. We thought it would be perfect to name it after our little green jam room in St. Joseph, Missouri, where it all started. The first song on Green Room, as well as the first single from the record, is entitled Seas, which I had the luck of hearing after the band's manager and father, Matt Radke, sent me some new tracks last summer. When the band was enthusing about it to me during the ZZ Top Cheap Trick show at Starlight, bassist Isaiah referred to it as their, quote, Foo Fighters song, describing it as a big rocker. He is 100% correct, and one has to be more than a little disappointed that the Foo's DC Jam, scheduled for the 4th of July, didn't go down this summer because it would have seen Radke get to rip this number in front of a FedEx field full of fans. That said, you can still crank this shit out of it right now. Green Room is streaming everywhere, and you can support the Kickstarter to get the album released on vinyl and find more info about the band at radke.net. Here is C's.
interview today we've got something uh really special and interesting uh joe drape uh is a writer uh, originally from kansas city he is now the award-winning sports writer uh for the new york times who has six books under his belt they're all about sports uh until his most recent book that's out now uh, which is called the saint makers inside the catholic church and how a war hero inspired a journey of faith uh and so this is really interesting uh it's about a guy from wichita uh, who uh, basically uh, he 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 became a doctor in in the Korean War. He was helping people out. He was doing a lot of crazy stuff uh, that was really cool, uh, and he passed away. Uh, and now there is a campaign to make him a saint. Uh, and so it sort of shows like the process by which one achieves sainthood. Which what we get into is sort of the idea that. In the history of the Catholic Church, where there's something like 10,000 plus saints, uh, it's just a lot of crazy cartoonish stuff. And I, I know it's, it's there's no point in me pointing at religion and saying, like, that's ridiculous because, you, you know, we all have our beliefs and stuff. But like even within the Catholic Church, they can point and be like, yeah, a lot of this was kind of dumb. So like it's it's this question of like, what does it take to become a saint? Why does it matter to become a saint in 2020? Uh, and and who who pushes to see that happen? So uh, it's it's a lot more about process than it is about belief. Uh, and the guy at the center of this is very fascinating. So anyway, here's my uh, interview with Joe Drape. Joe Drape, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to the uh, the audience here at Streetwise? Uh, sure, Brock. I'm Joe Drape. I'm a native of Kansas City. Uh, went to Rockers High School. I now am a sports writer at the New York Times after stops in Dallas and Atlanta and Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, pretty much written six, this will be my seventh book right now. It's called The Saint Makers. It's a Kansas-based story. It's about Father Emil Capon, who was the first military chaplain to get the Medal of Honor. And now there is an effort for him to become a saint in the Catholic Church. And uh, it's taken flight, and it's gotten all the way to Rome. And in this book, it's called The Saint Makers, and I don't have the whole title in front of me. <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I you know, that's, get... that's the danger of a long title is that you're going to wind up yeah. in an interview, and you're like, ah, the rest of it doesn't really. <laughs> right, and it, it is The Saint Makers Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. And it's basically my first book, Brock, Outside Sports. Uh, it was something I got very curious about of how the sausage is made, if you will, how you do become a saint. And I was intrigued by this guy's life because he was a small-town Kansas priest and ended up in the Korean War and just has this extraordinary story of heroism 
and faith and service and courage. One thing I do I, that I've learned is that uh, I will read any sports writer writing outside of sports because uh, anybody that can write sports already has just uh, has the chops to do literally anything anywhere else. So, yeah, uh, watching you uh, reading this book and having you tackle something that's uh, that's a little different. I was just like, yeah, he he's he's nailed it. He, but obviously, on top of that, you're a professional lifelong writer, so it wasn't like I was concerned about that. So there, a big chunk of the book is sort of about the thing that is – uh, really fascinating in a non-personal way, which is sort of the process of somebody becoming a saint, because <laughs> the Catholic Church is action-packed with something like 10,000 saints, and a lot of them uh, were either based sort of on real people or weren't even based on real people at all. Like you, you bring up uh, a, a particular saint that was rumored to be a, a, a giant, like he's just part of like legend, and like that that guy is a fairly important saint in the church. So like, what is what is the process whereby a real person uh, becomes sainted, and how long does that usually take? <laughs> well, the average age now, or the average time now, is 81 years from die, the time of your death to being canonized. And you're talking about Saint Christopher, and in the early, you know, this, this church is centuries old. And in the beginning, you just kind of needed a voice vote to be a saint. So if you know people were living in the Ward Parkway section of Kansas City said, Brock, you're a great guy. We want to make you a saint after you died. They'd make you a saint. There was no formal uh, rules or regulations. It's just your legend lived on. Uh, St. Christopher, the patron, the patron saint of travel, was one of those. And his legend was he was a giant who lived next to a river and became a ferryman. He carried people on his shoulders back and forth to the river. And, <laughs> and, and one day he took an infant, a, two, a toddler actually, a two-year-old, on his shoulders and struggled and could barely get there. And when he set him down, the toddler said, I'm Jesus, I'm your Savior. That's why it took you so much. You've, you've, you've carried God. So that's his Why life. is the baby so heavy? Why is the two-year-old talking? Yeah, there's so much here. Yeah, exactly. And then the, the, my favorite one that I put in the book is St. Gwyniford. And St. Gwyniford was a dog. And St. Gwyniford belonged to a knight in medieval times and was left behind to guard the knight's baby. And again, these are legends. Uh, to guard the, the, the knight's baby. And a snake came and he killed the snake and saved the baby. But when the knight returned, he just saw an empty crib and the dog with a bloody mouth. So the knight killed the dog. So St. Gwyniford is a dog who is now in parts of France, the patron of watching over infants. So that's what the church basically, and I'll, I'll give you the reader's digest version of what happened there. So there was a big move first in 1588 for the popes to put some rules and regulations in and, and they did so. Uh, among those things where you needed four miracles, and a miracle in the eyes of a church is some unexplained medical turnaround that science can't address, that, you know, you, you either came back from a coma, you came back from death, something that's very uh, much unexplained, and it was the result of the faithful, the community, praying to a saint like Father Capon, he's got two miracles, and praying for his intercession to help your loved one. 
And the reason that is important is because if you pray to your saint and there is a recovery, that proves that the saint is in heaven with God. I mean, that's the theory behind it. So over the years, they've shortened some of this. Uh, Now there's only two miracles needed. Uh, They've put in panels of like hundreds of scholars in theology and history who the first part of it is you write a positio is what they call it. And it's basically a hagiography. It's a, it's a profile with all the good stuff. Okay. None of the bad stuff, but presumably if you're a would be saint, you don't have bad stuff in your life. I also first, enjoy the idea of having to do the, the write up where you're like, all right, this person had like three miracles. We're going to kind of fudge on the fourth one because that's just right. an arbitrary miracle number to really reach. Right, and and you know that's what's happened. So over the years, it's evolved into a more formal system uh, with scholarship imposed on it. You have worldwide experts on the history. So if you know Father Capon, you had guys who understood American history, the Korean War, Kansas. Uh, experts in the time and the place and his writings. You have another panel that's theologians that looks over all his papers, his sermons, uh, and, you know, agrees that he was a worthy theologian. So, you know, that's step one. Uh, Step two is proving these miracles, and it comes, you got to get one miracle first, and then that means you're beatified, and then the second miracle put you in over as a saint. Now, you know, it's sort of my discovery along with the fake saints or the saints that really weren't saints was how much, uh, I don't want to say politics, but I'll say politics, just how much of a marketing arm that making saints has become in the Catholic Church. And that's really a modern twist that you can go back to John Paul II, a fairly recent pope. He was a evangelist by nature. He liked being out. In fact, he traveled to more countries than all the other popes before him combined. He loved to be on the road, and he would come into the causes of saint, which is, you know, the let's call it the cabinet post, the secretary or the department that makes saints, and he'd say, you know, I'm going to Ecuador. Who do we got there that can saint? And you know they would do it because he. I get a VIP room at the hotel for the month. Like ah, we'll pull some strings with God. Right, and you know what his point was is that you know saints are people that we should be able to relate to. They're our superheroes, and they should be like me and you. And if you're an Ecuadorian, you want to see somebody who reflects your culture. And he definitely saw that as a way to spread Catholicism, to make better PR, a marketing arm, especially, you know, in a lot of these places, there's a shortage of priests. So this was a way to fill that void a little bit. And, uh, you know, just recently, and this is where it's gone to, just recently, a 15-year-old Italian boy who died in 2006 and was an internet wonder and proved miracles on the internet, he just past stage three and that's because and you know it's unheard of he's only it's 2006 it's 220 now 2020 now uh but the point is it was a way for the church to say we're modern that we have a millennial computer savvy young man that could reach that demographic 
we're going to saint an influencer. That's buck wild. Yes. No, that's actually, that's a good way to put it, man. I'm going to have to use that in my future <laughs> interviews. Hey, so, so this, and, and look, obviously I can't go in with questions like, uh, why is this religion made up of so many weird things that don't make sense? But uh, like, so what, what we've established here is that like sainthood was a wild west of choices for so long. There's some basic rules and now it's sort of, just a, a hotel booking service, like and 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 for influencers. So why in 2020 does sainthood matter? I guess when it's done well or for the people it's for. Why why do you write a book now where the thrust is is the challenge and and the the dedication to sainting somebody that has so many people working behind it? Because this isn't just like a book about like somebody who's like, you know, my dad was was a really good guy. I think you should be a saint. This is something where an entire community has sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars into a campaign to try and make sure that this guy is sainted. What, what is the value of that now? Why does it matter? Well, the value of that is to have a example that you can imitate. They call it, you know, the imitability of it, that somebody who is like you, who just displayed goodness that you can inspires you to be a better person each day. And, you know, it's part of your identity. This is largely a Kansas-driven campaign. This was a farm kid who could fix anything, who lived on acres, who tended the land, who decided early he wanted to be a priest, goes into the priesthood, is smart, but, you know, not a rocket scientist, and just lived a good life each day. And he found his calling in the military of all places. Uh, he was a young man. He got along with young soldiers. Uh, the Korean War is called the Forgotten War because it comes on the heels of World War II. And the American dream is just taking hold in America. And it, this far-off war did not get the coverage, the news coverage that uh, World War II got. And over there, it was the most brutal war ever fought in American history. Uh, The Chinese overran us there. It was a brief, brutal war. And Father Capon smoked a pipe, commandeered a jeep, and was just famous for these daring rescues, never letting the wounded behind, Uh, talking and confronting Chinese soldiers, knocking their rifles out of the way. And they finally got captured. His... uh, unit got captured and they went on this death watch walk for months in the cold freezing winter and people were dying and the Chinese were shooting them if they couldn't walk and he would carry these guys and they lived under just terrible brutality but he was a guy in the camp that the Jews, the Muslims, the Protestants, the atheists all rallied around and he he did it just doing something that I think is in short supply right now world is being good and seeing the goodness in others he wasn't a preacher he didn't you know say you got to convert or anything he just was a influence of a man who lived a good life and wanted you to live a good life and would do anything for you and so in in this camp he would like build tools that they could get water he'd steal food for his prisoners He'd bury them when they died. He'd stay up. He'd pick maggots off them for hours at a time. Uh, And it was just this excellent example of 
courage, service, and faith, and that resonated. So, you know, that's the ideal of a saint is that somebody who reminds you of the goodness in the world and that you can aspire to. And honestly, you know, after researching his life and talking to people and being good is so hard. And I know that, and you know that. And for someone to display that every hour of every day throughout his life, you know, to me, that's the equivalent of, you know, becoming a Nobel Prize winner in science or chemistry or starting a tech firm. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement. And for us, for me, and this was a component of the book, is, you know, I'm not saved and I'm not a saint and I'm not the greatest person in the world, but I did get reminded that you need to try to be good and you need to try to see the goodness in, the, in other people every day. And that that is something, you know, we're in Lewis, Brock. We get a lot of things going on. We cop the story to stories. I've got a kid. Uh, you know, I have to yell at him about something. I mean, there's just so much going on in our lives. It just was nice to be reminded that there was somebody who could just cut out most of his day to being present for other people. It is uh, it is always fun for me working with new writers or an intern uh, when they get their first story up and then they see that uh, the comments on it are people all over the community being really bummed out about something. And they're like, well, oh, I made so many people so sad. I'm like, welcome to journalism. It is mostly this and uh, animal adoption stories that are nice every once in a while. But most of this is kind of a bummer. So, yeah, anytime you get to do a feature on some human being that's, that's interesting and fun and is nice with just a regular good person, that's that's pretty exceptional. Yeah, no, it is. And, and on the journalism, you're right. And young writers especially, you got to get that thick skin going because if you do it right, you've pissed half the people off and you've made half the people happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's you play it down the middle. So I, I guess the big question is, uh, for the father, what are his uh, four miracles? It's actually uh, – He's, he only needs two, and the two that they have in the pipeline are pretty remarkable. And he was a coach when in his priesthood days when he was in Kansas and an athlete. So the first one is Chase Keir, who was a pole vaulter at Hutchinson Community College, who missed the pit one day, cracked his skull in half, uh, basically was brain swelled, coma supposed to be you know non-responsive as he said he goes i was supposed to be a vegetable and you know spent months not being able to do anything and then miraculously came to and went on a just incredible rehabilitation and at his church they were praying to father capon they had a prayer chain and they would have special times every day to pray for his recovery his brothers and again this is in the early 2000s when the internet and social was getting started and his brother put a Facebook page up uh, for Chase and asking for um, prayers to Father Capon. And people all over the world responded. So that is miracle one. And to this, he's in aviation. He's in the aviation business in Wichita right now, about ready to get married. He's 33. This happened when he was 18. Uh, you know, and I go into it in the book that he didn't really 
know anything about this. I mean, he went to Mass on Sunday, but was by no means religion. And in fact, after his recovery, he was kind of startled and unnerved that people would come up and call him Miracle Man. And, you know, again, the Vatican sends in people, a medical thing, to talk to all the everybody involved in his treatment and recovery. And, you know, they have to say, and his doctor said, you know, there was really no medical reason for he, him to recover. Uh, he shouldn't have lived, and he shouldn't have been uh, cognizant and back 100% if he did live. So that's miracle one that they're waiting to present. And miracle two is uh, a girl named Avery Girlman. Uh, she is. She was 12 at the time. She was playing soccer, a youth soccer league down in Arkansas. All of a sudden, convulsed, started coughing up blood. They take her to the emergency room uh, in Arkansas. They say, you're dehydrated. So they get in the car. They drive back to Kansas, and she still is uneasy. They rush her to the emergency room, kidney failure, lung failure, put on a ventilator for, you know, close to 70 and 80 days. And they, for months, didn't know what exactly was wrong with her. And they finally said it was an autoimmune disease, or they they figured that part out. And she's another one who was not supposed to survive. And, in fact, they they were going to take her off the ventilator to let her, you know, die peacefully. And all of a sudden, she starts breathing on her own, and she wakes from this, you know, weeks-long coma and regains her strength. And the remarkable thing is for all the stuff, you know, at one point she had 14, 15 machines that she was hooked up to. And when they looked at her as she came through, they expect, you know, uh, the, the way the doctor put it is her her organs and lungs should have looked like a house after it had been burnt in a fire. But there was no permanent damage. Everything was working fine. And, again, it was a family and community effort, a prayer to Father Capon. And, you know, that's that's kind of a nice story. She, because of that experience, she decided to become a nurse, and she ended up returning to the hospital that she almost died in and was a nurse there. So those are the two miracles that are in the mix right now. Uh, I guess that just leaves the question, where can people find your book and where can they uh, read your other work? Well, uh, you can your local bookstore since everybody's scrambling. Rainy Day is there. You can go to Amazon. You can go to your Barnes and Noble. It's called Saint Makers. Uh, I am a sports writer with the New York Times. That's my day job. That's what pays the bills. And uh, you can find that at nytimes.com. And that's that's who I am and what I got going. And I hope people need sort of a good uplifting read after the misery of COVID and the rancor of politics and everything else. It, it, it was a, it was a pleasant different direction and a, and a, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a book that I think a, a lot of people need to read right now. So uh, thank you so much for sharing the book with us. Thank you for your time today and uh, stay safe out there. Brock, thanks for having me. All right. Thank you.
That was Joe Drape uh, from the the author of The Saint Makers, Inside the Catholic Church, and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. It's a great book. Uh, this has been the Streetwise Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Wilbur. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, please subscribe. Please tell other people about the show. But obviously, please just keep enjoying our work at thepitchkc.com or at the Fast Pitch on Twitter or follow the uh, the Facebook account. We are out there every day doing cool, good journalism for all you cool, good people. Um, if you ever have a couple extra bucks you want to toss our way or consider becoming uh, a sustaining member of, of what we do, please check out the website. There's a lot of ways to donate, and uh, every little buck keeps local journalism happening, uh, which, gosh, we, we I know everyone out there can use it right now, but we can use it too. So just putting our name on the list there alongside anybody else that you, you might be supporting in the local business world. We support a lot of local businesses too, so I, I don't know, maybe there's a trickle-down effect from your dollar here. Uh, any anything helps and we appreciate this the thought. Uh, so thank you guys for listening this week. Hope you're taking care out there. Please be safe, everybody. Pitch in, we'll make it through. Thank you.